Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. The reading is from Acts 13, uh, chapter 13, verse, verses 1 to 4a. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Cilicia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Lord, may your word live in us. Thank you, Ted. And so began the first missionary journey of, uh, of Paul and Barnabas. Um, you can put the other slide back up, uh, Carlton, just the normal one, the call for now. Thanks. Shall we pray? Lord God, we pray that in the words that are spoken, you may speak into our hearts and lives that through the video we watch in a few moments' time, uh, you will speak through Adam, and uh, that we will hear in what he has to say, we would gain a greater sense of, of Paul's response to, Paul's faithful response to your call on his life, and that we would be inspired by that example, and that we would hear your call in our lives too. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, for those who uh, may have missed uh, last week, we began a sermon series called The Call. And The Call is all about Paul's missionary journeys, Paul's life, his ministry, where he went, what he taught, the things that he did. And through, it's a six-week series, and it runs slightly differently in that every sermon has a video component led by the Reverend Adam Hamilton from the United Methodist Church in Kansas in the USA. And Adam has traveled across to uh, the different places where Paul was. He's taken a film crew with him. And because most of us are probably not going to get there, not going to be able to see the ruins and, and uh, the places of significance in Paul's life, he has done the journeys and uh, will take us through in each of the video segments. Last week, we, we looked at Paul faithfully following the call of God to, um, to commit his life to Christ, the Damascus Road conversion experience, um, how God was working in Paul, and how he led him to, to a faith that was almost unbelievable given from where he had come coming from a place of persecution of Christians, of overseeing the stoning of Stephen, of um, murderously, we are told, uh, breathing threats and, and seeking out Christians. He's blinded by this light on the road to Damascus and, um, and uh, scales come over his eyes and uh, God says to him, or the voice of Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why? Do you persecute me? And so powerful was that moment. He goes through 
uh, blind with his followers, and God calls Ananias, a man called Ananias, to go and speak to Paul and to heal him of his blindness. And if there was ever a person who had a case for not wanting to go and do what God had said, Ananias was that person. He knew that actually he was probably the very one of the ringleaders of who Paul was coming to get. Paul was seeking out Christians. He was wanting to get them killed, wanting to take them off to Jerusalem, wanting to see them imprisoned, wanting to shut down the following of what they called the way of Jesus as quickly as he could. Ananias feared for his life, but yet he faithfully answered the call of God and went to Saul and met him and prayed with him and uh, the scales fell from his eyes and Paul began this incredible journey of, um, of discovering who he was in Christ and what God had called him to do. Um, <clears throat> we have no way of knowing whether Ananias ever knew the type of effect that he had had. His one small moment of ministry, we never hear from Ananias again. And uh, yet that moment of ministry resulted in how many thousands, millions of lives being changed over the century. Our New Testament would certainly look very different um, without the work or the faithful response of Ananias. But we were also challenged last week about how God actually prepares us for the call. There were 14 years between Paul's conversion and this reading of his first missionary journey. 14 years passed. And it seems as if during those 14 years, God was working with the puzzle pieces of Paul's life, saying you have had everything that you've learned, everything that you know, everything that you understood shattered. Let me build it up together. Let me help you understand what my plan is for you, where I am in all of this, and how you can faithfully follow me. And so we looked at the challenge of how God does that in our lives. Now today, Reverend Adam Hamilton takes us to the place of Paul's first missionary journey. And the journey, of, the journey that uh, Paul does in his first missionary journey is to the cities in Galatia. There are the cities named Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And they pass through a major town called Pisidian Antioch. He, Paul passes through Pisidian Antioch on the way to the cities, and he passes through Pisidian Antioch on his way back. And we've got no way of really knowing definitively how long it took Paul to do this journey. We estimate that uh, given, give or take a bit of time for uh, difference in traveling times, whether slow or faster, it would seem that this first missionary journey took somewhere in the region of between six and uh, nine months long. It covered a, a distance of roughly uh, 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers, which coincidentally is the same distance from Bundaberg to Alice Springs, I found out. But uh, Paul preached in, um, in all of these cities, and then he moved on to the next city. And uh, there he developed this kind of pattern. He would go from city to city, preach in the synagogue, teach the, teach the people, expound the scriptures. And the main message of his first missionary journey 
was actually about uh, the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, they had, Adam will tell you a little bit about this on the video, but they used to call Caesar the king of kings. And they used to call him the savior of the world. And Paul's main message to these three cities in Galatia was actually that Jesus is the one who deserves that title. That Jesus brings about a deliverance from sin, that he brings about forgiveness, and importantly, that he brings eternal life. One of the really interesting things about this missionary journey was um, that Paul developed his method as he kind of went along. And when he started the journeys, when he started the ministries, he would go to the towns, like I say, he would teach in the synagogues, and then he would leave. And when he was at one, I forget which one of the cities, but, but he faced, he got kicked out of all of the cities. At some stage, the, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the, in each place got upset with his popularity and got rid of him out of the city. One of them, he got stoned. Not as in stoned like we think of today. He didn't get stoned. There was no uh, happiness in this at all. He was literally stoned outside the city by the people throwing rocks at him to the point where his companions thought he was dead. And they carried his, apparently, lifeless body out and were mourning him outside the city gates when he showed signs of life and began to, to sit up and they realized he's still alive. But it was this experience that led Paul to actually change his method. And so when he went, he then went back into the city, by the way, the same city that had stoned him. He went back in. And he appointed elders and leaders and effectively started a church, started the fellowship groups. And that became his method of operation from there on. He would then, wherever he went, would establish a leadership of, of um, a fellowship of believers. And those are the people who he, would, um, who he would write the letters to. And so the letter that he writes to uh, the churches of his first missionary journey is the letter of Galatians to the Galatian churches. And it, we think, there's no sort of definitive thing, but we think it's sort of written um, about six or seven months after the first missionary journey ended. It is important, though, to remember that Paul didn't travel alone. Paul and Barnabas traveled together. They were, Ted read for us how during worship, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas. And that's quite important. I'll come back to that a little bit uh, later on. But let's hear from, um, from Adam Hamilton, and uh, he'll take us through the journey of Paul's first missionary journey. Thanks, Carlton. What would lead a first-century rabbi to travel thousands of miles by sea and by land, to be beaten, imprisoned and ultimately beheaded for his faith. It was a call, a call to turn the world upside down. This is the story of the Apostle Paul, whose writings continue to shape the lives of one third of the world's population. A man second only to Jesus in his impact and influence on the Christian faith, and whose witness defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
After Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the believers in Assyrian Antioch, they made their way to the coast and boarded a ship that would have looked something like the one you see here. And they would have traveled thousands of miles on ships like this across the course of, or Paul would have, over the course of the next 15 years, 20 years. And they made their way to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown, or home island. This is where he was from. And uh, Barnabas, John Mark, his younger cousin, and Paul make their way to Cyprus. They travel across by land as they're ministering, as they're preaching and offering Christ. And then finally, they leave the island of Cyprus and make their way by ship over to Perga. Now, Perga was no small city. It was a major city here in this particular region. It was the capital city of the province. And, uh, and though Luke doesn't tell us much of what happens here, only that they entered Perga, and then later on they came back through and Paul proclaimed the gospel, what we know is that Paul, Barnabas, they entered through these city gates as they began their missionary journey in Asia Minor. And so we enter through these same gates today, and we remember the fact that Paul walked here in this place as he was launching his mission to Asia Minor. In Perga, you find fine examples of great ruins from the time of the Apostle Paul and earlier. And then you see this amazing main street with really two roads uh, going through it. So you have a very large example of a cardo or of a marketplace with the main streets with shops lining the streets. So Paul would have traveled from Perga up the plain alongside the Cestrus River, which we're standing in front of now. An old Roman road ran along the Cestrus River and made its way up into the mountain pass through, uh, through the Taurus Mountains and up to Pisidian Antioch. And so you can see, you know, many people picture Paul, you know, traversing across desert-like, uh, you know, or, or dry, flat terrains in Turkey, but that's not what he was walking across. He was getting ready to cross the Taurus Mountains, uh, ascending 5,000 feet to go to Pisidian Antioch. It would have taken him about three weeks to make this journey, I think, because he would have had to stop where there were water sources along the way. So he and Barnabas making their way uh, along the river as long as it uh, traversed, and then uh, along the Roman road up the Taurus Mountains to Pisidian Antioch. Let's head that direction. After traveling for two or probably three weeks, Paul and Barnabas finally arrive to the town of Pisidian Antioch. They have traveled across the mountains you see in the background, the Taurus Mountains, and, uh, and they've come up in elevation to uh, a city that's probably three to 4,000 feet above sea level. And, and in Perga, the temperature there was about 10 degrees warmer than it is here, but the relative humidity was about 90%, whereas here the humidity is low, the temperatures are a little bit lower, and, uh, and so this would have been a place that was much more comfortable. Uh, some have suggested that Paul was sick. In fact, Paul says that he came to Galatia and preached there because he wasn't feeling well because of his illness he came here, and so perhaps that had something to do with the temperatures in this region. I'm standing on the Roman road leading into the city, and as we walk into Pisidian Antioch, I just let you know this was a large city built on a hilltop. It was a city of some 15 to 20,000 residents. That's a huge city in uh, Asia Minor at the time. 
He'll come to the city four times in total. So on each of his missionary journeys, he's gonna come here. And on this journey, his first journey, uh, he comes here twice. As he enters the city, he begins to preach. And as he's, as he's coming back from visiting the towns of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, he's gonna come here again. So let's make our way into Pisidian Antioch. This is one of the main streets coming through the town of Pisidian Antioch, and there's no question that Paul walked up and down these streets many times in his four visits to this town. And as you come in, you see the old Roman stones, the old Roman road, and, and then you see that the streets are lined with shops. So everywhere you look, on every side of the main streets, and this was true in almost every Roman town, uh, really almost every ancient town of any size, is you had shops lining the streets. And so today we think of open-air malls as sort of the, the new thing in shopping for uh, Americans, but this is how people shopped in the Roman Empire. And uh, the size of it was maybe um, 12 feet by perhaps eight feet. And uh, the shopkeepers would offer their wares here. People would either come in or they'd be served from the entryway. And you can still see here where the, uh, where the door posts were and where the locks would go to keep this stop, uh, the shop locked at night. So this is an example of shopping in Pisidian Antioch. At the high point of Pisidian Antioch, the town of Pisidian Antioch, stood a temple. It was the center of town. Everybody could see it when you came into town. And that temple was dedicated to Augustus Caesar. He was deified and considered a son of God, as well as Lord of the universe and King of Kings. And this temple was meant to honor him. And in this city, Paul came and he was announcing a different kind of king. He announced Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord of the universe and the Son of the Most High God. And as he came and preached that message in this town, there were some who were immediately drawn to it and others who were angered by it. And ultimately, they would throw him out of town. Paul was a rabbi and a Pharisee, and he was trained in preaching and in teaching. And so his strategy when he would go and share the good news across the empire on his missionary journeys is he would start with the Jews. He would go to the synagogue. And as he was asked to proclaim or to teach on a particular passage, somehow he would always find a way of tying that passage back into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Behind me is a church that was built in the 300s and it was dedicated to St. Paul. And uh, this church, some believe, was built atop the site where the old synagogue had been that Paul first preached in when he came to Pisidian Antioch. And he goes through in, in what is the longest recorded sermon of Paul found in the scriptures here in Pisidian Antioch. He, he begins with God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. He takes them to King David. And then he talks about how the descendant of King David, Jesus, was the Messiah who suffered and died and rose again and how he died for the forgiveness of sins. And then he invited people to become followers of Jesus. Now on that first day, the Jews and the Gentiles were very interested in what he had to say. And when he came back the next week, so undoubtedly he was teaching throughout the week, but when he came back to the synagogue the next week, Acts tells us there was a huge crowd of people. And many of the Gentiles in particular were drawn to this Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And, uh, and yet that upset many of the Jews in the synagogue who, who then turned some of the Gentiles of the town away from uh, Paul. And after that second week, Paul and uh, Barnabas were asked to leave the town. In fact, they were really almost driven out of the town. So Paul leaves Antioch and he travels eastward to the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. If you were to visit these sites today, all you'd find is large hills. These are called tells, and they're man-made hills. The, the cities would be destroyed by earthquake or war or fire, and, 
And then the, the people would rebuild the city on top of the old ruins. And uh, they would bring in a layer of dirt. They would flatten things out. They would start all over again. And then when that city was destroyed again, another century later, it would be flattened out and a, and a new city would be built on top of the former remo- remains. And so over time, the cities were built up higher and higher. And then when the city was finally abandoned, nature took over and it just became a large hill. Archaeologists love to excavate these sites. And as you begin to strip away layer after layer, the lower you go, the further back in time you're going. But today, all we can see are just a few ruins and rocks that spring up from the soil and then these large hills. And we remember it was in these places that Paul proclaimed the gospel and started some of his first churches in Asia Minor. Barnabas, whose name was Joseph, was given the name Barnabas by the disciples. And in the book of Acts, it says they called him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. It literally means son of a prophet, but for them, it was son of encouragement. And Barnabas was the one, you'll remember, who went and found Paul after his conversion and assured the believers that it was safe to be with Paul. He, he took him to Jerusalem and introduced him to the apostles. It was Barnabas who found Paul when he was in Tarsus and brought him back to Syrian Antioch to be sent out on the mission field. And it was Barnabas who said, I'll go with you. I'll go with you on this mission. He was an encourager to Paul. Paul needed that. He needed his encouragement. He needed his wisdom. He needed him to come alongside him. And, and the same is true for every one of us. We all need an encourager. We all need a Barnabas in our lives, somebody who comes alongside us to encourage us, to give us strength, to help us have wisdom, to, to, to make the right, to walk the right path, and to do the things that God calls us to do. But listen, you're also called, every one of you, to be an encourager, to be a Barnabas for someone else. There's somebody who needs you to come alongside them, to mentor them, encourage them, to stand with them, to give them courage. So I'd ask you this question, who is your Barnabas? And for whom are you a Barnabas? Two really challenging questions that uh, Adam asks. Um, Who is your Barnabas and who are you a Barnabas for? Who are you an encourager for and who is encouraging you? It is interesting, like Ananias, to, to think that if Barnabas hadn't answered his call, if Barnabas hadn't been faithful, would Paul have even gone? It's also interesting to see that as Barnabas begins to journey with Paul, Luke records the story in a really interesting way. He keeps saying Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul heading off on their first missionary journey. But somewhere about the middle, he flicks it over and it becomes Paul and Barnabas. In other words, Paul began to kind of take the lead. And I think it's a beautiful thing that Barnabas, who was supposed to be the initial mentor, who was leading Paul, who was teaching him, allows Paul to flourish and looks almost and says, what, what are your giftings? What is God calling you to do? How can I encourage you in this way? And uh, that is something that is a a wonderful challenge for each of us to look at doing in terms of saying, how can we be those encouragers for other people? But how do we get encouraged as well? Is there someone in my life who, who is helping me journey faithfully? But I want to pick up on another interesting point out of this first journey, and it comes right out of the reading that Ted read for us at the beginning. The call that Paul and Barnabas received to go on this journey, Ted read for us, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Saul and Barnabas went. I love the fact that it's in the context of worship that they receive the call from the Spirit to go. Earlier on with the children, I was talking about the importance of worship. It shouldn't really surprise us that the Spirit spoke so clearly to them in worship because we're told that where two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be. There my Spirit will move among them. In his book, Adam Hamilton makes the point that God often speaks, or even God most often speaks, in the context of worship. Which isn't to say that he doesn't speak in other ways, or isn't to say that God can't speak in the, from an infinite number of ways, from people to nature to personal devotions or, or other things. But in moments where we specifically have gathered to hear God's voice, we should really expect to hear it. We should really expect God to be speaking to us in the context of worship. And the challenge really comes down to that expectation with which we come into this place. Do we come expecting God to speak, or do we just come to church? Do we sometimes just come here because we need to come here and this is what we're supposed to do, we know we're supposed to go to church? Or do we arrive here every morning saying, Lord, what are you going to be saying to me today? How are you going to be speaking to me? What is it that your voice is calling me to do? Interestingly enough, but more and more people are moving away from church. I don't have to tell you that. We know this in our society and in the, in the context with which we live. We know this maybe even in our own families. People move away from church. And the, one of the phrases that I often hear, you may have heard it too, is someone will say, well, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Have you ever heard that phrase? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what this really means is, I believe in God, but, but I don't go to church, or I don't want to go to church, or I don't think I need to go to church. But if the gathered community, if the gathered community is where God most clearly speaks or often speaks, then every Sunday there will be a still small voice. Every Sunday there should be this priority that, that we need to be in this place together. We need to come expecting that God will speak. I was recently in a meeting where there was a panel discussion and, and on this panel was a person who, who no longer went to church. They said they were still spiritual, but, but that church didn't really do it for them that the songs didn't grab them, that the preaching wasn't great, and, and so on, and, and it carried on a little bit like that. Now, I'm not saying that there is any excuse for a, for a substandard service, but I actually don't think the songs and the preaching were all that great in the early, in, in the early church either. Have you ever read Paul's sermons? Have you ever read the sermons that Peter preached at Pentecost? They are dead boring. There's no illustrations, there's no PowerPoints, there's no nothing going on in, uh, in those sermons. We, we think of Paul as this powerful preacher, but actually go home and read 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10, because Paul says himself, he says, well, you know, the people say that my writing's pretty good, but my sermons are really awful. He says, they say, they say I'm a weak preacher. And the songs that they sang weren't played on a fancy organ or with a great worship team or maybe a not-so-great guitarist, but 
they were, they were sung just on their own voices. It wasn't the nature of the worship or the sermon that made it good. It was that they expected God's Spirit to speak. They expected God to do things because God's Spirit moves and speaks when people come together with that expectation. When you come to church, and this is a, this is a huge challenge for every single one of us, is it with an expectation of, I cannot wait to hear what God is going to say to me today? I will be honest with you and say this is a challenge for me because sometimes I come to church and I think, oh my goodness, three services today, here we go. <sighs> let, me, let, me get this, let me get this done. Do I come to church with a sense of, what is God going to say today? Do we come to church with that sense? This is the challenge for every single one of us. God's Spirit is speaking. God's Spirit is moving. What is He saying to you? What is He saying to me? Let me close with a story. There's a, there's a worship song. Maybe you know it. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Do you know that song? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Do you know that one? It's old. It's older than me, actually. And it's awful. <laughs> I, I, well, maybe you like it. I don't like that song. I um, have sung it many, 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 many times in my life. It is not my favorite song. Why? Because when I was ministering in my church in Pretoria, it was their favorite song. And they sang it every single week. And then I moved to a church in Durban, and it appeared to be their favorite song. And they sang the song to death for me. It was, uh, I really, I don't enjoy that song. Over and over, and it did nothing for me except irritate me and annoy me. Anyway, fast forward a little bit to that Rome holiday that Debbie and I went on. The one I showed you pictures of uh, last week when we were in the prison that, that Paul and Peter were, were in before they were executed. Well, we went to Rome, and one of the things that I really wanted to see, I only really wanted to see two things. One was that prison the other one was the catacombs. And the catacombs are the, the burial places outside of the city of Rome, deep underground. Uh, they didn't bury people like we bury them. They buried them in, in uh, these sort of underground caverns. And uh, we went to the catacombs at San Callisto. Um, that is the only photograph I actually took because you're not allowed to take any photos inside the catacombs. They like to sell them and make a bit of money off you. So the rest of these photographs I've stolen off Google because I was too cheap to pay for, <laughs> for the photos at the catacombs. So we go to the catacombs, and if you look at the next photograph, you, you enter into the catacombs, you descend down uh, the staircase, um, and, uh, and you go into these tunnels, which you'll see in the next photograph. And in the tunnels where there's holes in the wall, that's where uh, coffins were laid and they were sealed up. Many of them are unsealed now. The, um, the remains are gone and there are still one or two sealed, but, um, but you know, obviously it's, it's sealed with stone. If you look at the next one, there's another passageway just with these spaces in the wall. But you get to points where you turn left or right, and if you look, you'll see on the next slide uh, where there's these little rooms. And these little rooms were for wealthy families. Families had their own 
uh, room. The next one's an even bigger one. Uh, sorry, that's a smaller one. Some of them are really small and crowded. The next one is actually uh, the largest one of them all. There's a picture of Jesus on the side. The reason I wanted to go to the catacombs was not because I have a macabre interest in, in, uh, in, uh, in burial grounds, but during Nero's time, the, the emperor Nero in Rome persecuted the Christians. He would kill them in the circus, they would be eaten by wild animals or killed by the gladiators or whatever. Or he would actually literally wrap them up in tar and pitch and set them alight. He would cut out their tongues so you couldn't hear them screaming and set them alight so that they could light up his garden at night. And so the Christians were persecuted in this way. What they would then do is meet in secret in the catacombs where the soldiers would never go. The soldiers would never go to those underground tombs, and, and so uh, the early Christians in Rome would meet inside those catacombs, and I wanted to go and uh, see this place where the very first persecuted Christians worshipped in secret. And it was an amazing place. We had to walk a long way to get there. It's, a, it's quite a distance outside the city. You catch a bus, and then you walk and walk and walk. And if you've been to an overseas uh, tourist attraction, you'll know that there are big queues. We waited for ages and ages in this queue. And, um, and I didn't mind because it was going to be so meaningful uh, to be in this place. After all the build-up of waiting, we paid the, the exorbitant price for the tickets. We descended the staircase into the tunnel. And do you know what I hear? Some Christian group was meeting down in one of the rooms, conducting their own worship service, and you know what they were singing? <laughs> Very badly, I might add. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The special moment that I've been looking forward to all this time, and I walk into that song. But can I tell you something? It was the most beautiful song I'd ever heard. I actually started to cry when I heard it, and still even now, am moved, it moves me to tears when I think about it. Not because they sang it badly, but it because it was the Holy Spirit saying to me, I am here. I am in this place. I have touched lives in this place for 2,000 years, and I'm touching yours right now. I'm touching yours right now. It was an incredible, incredible moment. And I didn't even go expecting the Holy Spirit to speak. I expected some experience. Can you imagine what happens when we come into a place expecting God's Spirit to speak? It's still not my favorite song. But in that place, in that moment, God used it so powerfully to speak to me. Just to powerfully say into my life, I have a plan for you. My presence is with you. And so the challenge to you and to me today is to say, what is God saying to you when we come into worship? What is God saying to me when we come into worship? I pray that we may come expecting that he's saying something. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of Barnabas and Paul, for the faithfulness of 
Ananias. And we thank you, Lord, for those who have encouraged us along the way. Thank you for the opportunities we get to encourage others. And Lord God, we thank you that when we come to worship, you speak to us. We thank you that you speak in so many ways. You don't only speak in worship. You speak through devotions. You speak through other people. You speak through services. You speak through all things. But, but something special happens in the gathered community. And we thank you for that. And we pray and ask, Lord God, that, that the challenge would be there for us, that when we come to worship, we would come expectantly. We would come with hearts that say, what are you saying to me? What do you want to lead me towards? For we know, Lord, that Paul isn't the only one with a call on his life, but that you call each of us. So speak, Lord, for we, your children, will be listening. Amen.